we all have baggage. By which I mean, each one of us collects a mountain of actual stuff. If you live in a city, you know that people find creative ways to cram things into their apartment. This 250-year-old French armoire, originally in a castle. And when they run out of room, they cram the rest into storage lockers. I think the strangest thing that we're storing right now is probably a nail bed for this performer. So it's just literally just this big plank of wood with these massive gauge nails. No one knows better than this guy what you keep under lock and key. This is Mark Eng. Today he is... One of the founders and CEO of Second Closet. Second Closet is a self-storage company in Toronto. They are challenging an old model with a service-oriented, push-button approach to liberating your space. So you have more room for that French armoire or the nail bed. This is Earning Curve, a podcast about business in Canada from Interact and Gimlet Creative. I'm Michelle Romano. No one builds a business on their own. On each episode of the show, we're meeting entrepreneurs like Mark and listening in on their conversations with founders who have struck business gold. Today, we're in Toronto with two people who know a ton about taking a good idea and growing it with serious momentum. In a bit, we'll be joined by Michael Hyatt. He's built two enormously successful tech firms and just sold his second, Blue Cat, for $400 million. He puts his business smarts to work as an investor on Gimlet's The Pitch, as a weekly commentator on CBC, and as a dragon on Next Gen Den, the online version of Dragon's Den. Michael believes that entrepreneurship can be taught, and he's deeply invested, literally and figuratively, in people with vision. People like Mark. So, is an entrepreneur born or made? Mark caught the business bug early, like at 10 years old. My dad's entrepreneurial. He actually dropped out of grade 10 to get into business. The very first brush with one of his businesses, which is real estate development, was us demolishing one of the apartment buildings that he owns and building it from scratch. You know, he never treated us like, you know, we were just kids and and 10-year-olds. He always just had expectations that were far higher than that and far greater than that. So by 14 and 15, we could actually manage these larger projects. That sort of got me interested in, in business and all that it could do. What I like about business in general is that you get to build something. Mark had his first taste of success and independent pay by connecting brands with overseas producers. But the first thing he decided to build on his own was a watch company. He was 18. He used $250 in savings from birthdays and Christmas gifts to get started. One year and a $100,000 Kickstarter campaign later, the company was on its way. He learned everything else by doing. You know, really just myself running it uh, on the day-to-day, taking care of everything. I was, you know, picking every single watch and shipping it myself at Canada Post until it got a little too voluminous. And then I found a pick, pack, and shipper for me down in the States. That taught me sort of supply chain management, how to manage digital ad spend, and optimize towards it. So really taught me that marketing is more of a science than an art. At the same time, Mark and his older brother, David, moved out of their parents' house into a small apartment in Toronto. Because my brother was paying the rent, he got the bedroom, he got the closet space, and I got the couch. Now, the unfortunate thing is that we had to discard a ton of stuff that was pretty valuable to us and that we ended up having to replace later on in life anyway. And the reason we did that was because I was shopping around for self-storage and just, I mean, downtown prices are crazy. 
On top of that, the proposition of getting a truck didn't really make sense because that just added costs. So I envisioned a service where they would pick up, store, and return our stuff. Mark folded together everything he learned about digital marketing, supply chain management, and operations from his previous two companies. And Second Closet was born. It's a subscription recurring revenue-based model. It has a service component, it's got a physical component, and it's got that reoccurring revenue side, which is nice because although, you know, selling a, you know, $420 watch was great, um, they're one and done often. And so, you know, then on to the next. Mark and his brother weren't the only ones needing extra space. We launched into the student market in Toronto. We had the supplier. You know, after two weeks of launching, had accumulated close to 300 to 400 orders. Um, so within two weeks, we had 400 new clients. And so with us in the storage industry, which is, you know, age-old industry, we're coming into it. It's about a $45 billion market in North America. Even in the GTA alone, it's $600 million. So it's, it's quite a good market, but it's ripe for disruption because I just think the idea is going to be so archaic to rent a truck, throw it in the back of your trunk, haul everything to a storage locker, make a whole afternoon out of it just to get a couple things into storage or back out. Second Closet is trying to think of new and innovative ways to make the experience more pleasant because they believe there are better ways to manage physical stuff. They have boiled it down to a few key values, convenience and security. You would go to secondcloset.com, click start here and just go through the checkout process. That lets you tell us what you're storing, how much you're storing, um, the date and time you'd like us to come to pick it all up. You set up your automatic billing at the same time and you get access to your personal portal then. On the day of your appointment, you get a call in advance of your appointment uh, by the ops team that's taking care of you, giving you an ETA of when they're gonna show up. They show up, they professionally move everything safely, bring it back to our warehouses where we store them securely. And whenever you want something back, you just go online and do the same thing in reverse. Another value, affordability. I mean, we see it all. We, we help people that have you know mansions in some of the nicest neighborhoods in Toronto. And then we help people that are paycheck to paycheck or you know sometimes in very difficult positions. And so that lets you see every single use case imaginable. And some of them like we actually feel quite humbled uh, to be able to help with. Long-term, Second Closet wants to be the go-to solution for storage. They're already in expansion mode. Next stop, British Columbia. We've decided to expand to Vancouver because we think that's the next biggest market that we can help service in Canada. We'll be going there in Q1 of 2019. And I think that's gonna be a great first step for the company in terms of expansion because it's a Canadian city, it's got a great market, a lot of demand, and I think there's a lot that we can do to help improve the interaction with people's physical stuff. We're a team of 35 full-time people right now. My gut is that that's gonna you know, double and triple as, the, as we go into 2019. And that's just in the first year. Coming up after the break, Mark and I will be joined by Toronto-based serial entrepreneur, Michael Hyatt, to talk more about how and why a new company attracts big money and big talent. You might know the name Michael Hyatt. After becoming one of Canada's youngest and most successful founders, his advice and insight has been sought all over. You can hear him help new founders talk through their ideas on Gimlet's podcast, The Pitch. So help us old folks with something here. Yes. Why are we doing this? How are you going to generate revenue? How is it going to be a business? How is it an investable asset? Yeah, so what we're focused on, right? we today power 1.25 million experiences across our applications. Per so 
I've known Michael for a while as part of the next-gen den on Dragon's Den. In both shows, Michael hears hundreds of pitches and ideas. But there was something special, that it thing, about Mark Eng of Second Closet. When they met, Michael invested quickly and heavily into Mark's company. We'll find out why in a minute. But Michael's own path to success took a slightly longer, more winding road. Well, I grew up in Richmond Hill. I had a very middle, maybe sometimes lower middle class upbringing and uh, fought for everything and uh, always wanted to be in business. But uh, growing up, I had a lot of medical issues and I think I went towards wanting to be a doctor. And uh, so I headed off to uh, Western to be a doctor. And after four years of science, decided that wasn't going to work for me. And I came out uh, in the mid 90s when this thing called the internet was just starting. And uh, it was a very interesting time because it was a recession. Things were very, very difficult. And there wasn't all these incredible things you have now. There wasn't any easy access to money, meetups. Uh, the ecosystem was completely immature. My brother was writing software and I could sell. And we literally uh, rented the front of a photography studio and I would bang away on the phones all day trying to sell software. And we would mail people diskettes in the mail and then call them three days later and see if they actually got them. And that's how we started. What kind of software were you trying to sell? Like, how did, like, what did you decide on? You just got into the photography studio one day and were like, we'll sell something? Well, it was kind of funny because my dad was a chemical engineer. My brother wrote a piece of software for him in the chemical industry, which was a very specific niche software to help chemical companies not get away from complying to OSHA and the EPA. It sounds kind of boring, but the thing you learn about software is that if you can write something niche sometimes it can be expensive. And we would sell this for about $3,000 a seat. And, and back then, in the mid-90s, that's a lot of money. Totally. So let's just talk really quickly about your two main ventures. Uh, both started with your brother. I know you've recently exited Blue Cat and you could have started another gig, but instead you've spent a lot of time investing in entrepreneurs like Mark. You know, why and what influenced that decision versus going back to founding a company again? No, quite frankly, investing the money that you got is actually a full-time job. There's a lot of work to it. Investing is a completely new career for me, and I'm really enjoying it. And then every once in a while, by accident, is that you bump into some entrepreneurs that you get passionate about, and you can build something with, and then you invest in it, and then you have fun again. But you don't have to take, you know, the... Uh, 30-hour days, you know, uh, that are going to crush you. Totally. So so when did you meet Mark? Tell me about that first meeting. Uh, I'm one of the um, investing founders of uh, Creative Destruction Lab at UFT at Rotman, which you've seen, which is just just doing an incredible job in artificial intelligence and quantum computing and, and really changing the game for how, you know, startups are put together, uh, certainly in Canada and some of the U.S. And Mark was actually a student at the school there, and one day I was just walking around Mars, the Mars building, and he had a set top with his brother, you know, talking about his new company, Second Closet. And I walked by and he said, hey, hey, Michael. And I turned around and I didn't really recognize him. Then he says, hey, I know you're from the Creative Destruction Lab. And I paused and I listened to him and his brother. And uh, I, I got to say this, this sounds really silly, but he kind of had me at hello. Uh, he, you know, <laughs> it was so a really cute. strange experience. And I was with my brother, Richard, and I kind of said, hey, Richard, come over here, come see this. And we were listening to these guys and they were so keen and so smart. I'm like, wow, I can actually see myself needing what you're doing. Okay, fine. I'm going to take a meeting. So Mark, what did this meeting feel like for you? Like you just grabbed Michael walking down the hallway <laughs> and gave him a pitch or what's the reverse version of this story? It hits it right on the head. I was an undergrad student in an MBA program at U of T. Mm -hmm. And Micah was one of the G7 advisors. So put on a pedestal, someone that gives advice at every single meeting. Saw him walking down the hall and I thought, you know, what better chance for me to, to speak to him one-on-one -on -one than in Mars with my booth set up. And so I just called him over 
And he came over and we just started chatting and having a frank conversation about the business, our plans, the offering, and he loved it. And, and as he said, pulled Richard in and we had a conversation and grabbed coffee the week after. And so I know, Michael, you said immediately you resonated with the product, but there must have also been something about Mark that resonated with you. And so what do you really look for in the entrepreneurs you're backing? I, I know this sounds flaky, but the number one thing you, you do when you meet somebody is use your instincts and you say, do I like this person? Would I invite them to a barbecue? Do I want to be stuck with them at an airport for four hours? Yeah. Can I even And would I show up person? on a five-hour red eye to do an investor meeting with them because it really mattered to them and would I be happy to do it, right? Right. Do I really like them? people because at this point it really has to be meaningful and I can only invest in very few companies because it's really not the money it's the time mm -hmm. and the time is the expensive thing yeah and it's all about can I connect with them can I speak to them are they going to listen because I can move this company with Mark a lot lot faster if he listens I can help Mark make less mistakes than he would make on his own I can't stop him from making all the mistakes because I'm going to make mistakes too but he will get ahead because he makes fewer mistakes and will he take that feedback and will he apply it and and you picked up on something really interesting earlier, which is, um, you know, this belief that not everyone should be an entrepreneur, which I totally, totally believe. Like, this is just so high risk and you need, you know, such a degree. You need to be able to hear no all the time, but keep going. Like, there's all these, like, really interesting personality traits. Like, do you think that there is a kind of personality that's better suited to be an entrepreneur than others versus just being kind of coachable versus not? Listen, I think you have to have uh, a really, really strong appetite for risk. You have to be a little bit of a poker player. You have to be a little bit of a, a gambler. You have to be able to take risk and then stick with it. So if you have the stomach for risk, then do you have the ability to keep showing up and keep showing up every day? And do you have the grit and the fortitude to do that? Well, I might jump in there and add that I think people that have gone through some sort of adversity in their life, whether it's personal, professional, generally get subjected to certain pressures that the average person doesn't. Yeah. And so they come out of the end of that process having a little bit more understanding of what it takes to actually get through something. And when you're running a company and you're faced with all this adversity, you go through that on a daily basis. So I think when someone has gone through that other personally or professionally before in the past, it helps them in building that company in the future. That's awesome. Do you guys feel like you're a Toronto company? Like, are there things about the Toronto scene that have made it more difficult? I know that you're in the process of expanding to Vancouver. Tell me about how you kind of thought about, about being in Toronto, besides the fact that, that you happen to be there in this condo in Liberty Village. Yeah, well, I think we're super fortunate because Toronto is one of the, the biggest cities in Canada. And it's got a vibrant financial industry. It's got a vibrant real estate industry. Um, it's got a lot of things that drive demand for our product. And on top of that, it's got seasons, which actually helps us year round because when the winter comes, a lot of people put their summer stuff away and then vice versa when the seasons change. So we were kind of fortunate to be born in Canada and in Toronto specifically because it's helped grow our business faster than if we were in somewhere you know, down in the Midwest in the States. So can't think of a better place to launch, but looking into Vancouver, one of the other densely populated areas in Canada, there's a serious storage need there as well. And so that's why we figured, let's build a sustainable business in Toronto. Let's figure out the economics of the business here and copy paste it in another city that we think has an attractive market opportunity. And how did you make this decision of like, now this is the time to expand to another city? Because Toronto probably still has, you know, four or five years of growth uh, that's available here. The reality is that we were just getting pulled to Vancouver. We have existing clients that, you know, are asking, oh, when are you going to be in Vancouver? I have a use case for you guys out there. We have clients that aren't, you know, signed on yet. So prospects that are saying, when are you going to be in Vancouver? I heard about your service from some friends in Toronto and we really want you in Vancouver. And the cherry on top is that it's just an attractive market for us and a place that we want to go anyway. So we're pulling the trigger uh, very shortly. You know, I think that... Um 
I got to be honest, I was very much about them trying to probably expand more locally outside Toronto, like Ottawa and Montreal. But when you look at the use case and, and the financials, Vancouver makes a lot of sense. You know, it, it's interesting too, and, and something we should probably go back and touch on was uh, once we met, uh, how fast we uh, got them funded and in the round because, you know, capital builds businesses and they need to raise it. So, you know, I think for entrepreneurs out there listening that if if you want to raise capital and you haven't been a repeat entrepreneur and you don't have a track record and you're trying this out and experimental, see if you can land somebody that'll believe in you early. I think that, uh, so what we did, I think our initial round was maybe half a million dollars. Yeah. And I, and I think we raised that round in about eight hours. Yeah. We, we closed it pretty much in a day and, and yeah. So what would happen is that I, I could have done the round, but I decided not to. What I did is I brought in uh, people in that had a lot of experience in storage and could help them. And they absolutely, absolutely have, right? They've been, they've been phenomenal, right? Giving them space and advice. I can't stress enough how hard it is to actually raise money and doing it in one day probably knocked off three to six months of his time. And you know this, Michelle, like it's a lot of paperwork, a lot of stuff to do. And people just think, oh, I just raised money. It's easy. It's actually very rare to get it done so quickly. So if you can kind of figure out a way to get somebody on who believes in you early with credibility, I think that uh, you can uh, get funded and get moving. Yeah, no, it's it's like easier said than done. And Mark, it's super impressive. Um, and Michael, you sounded like a, a the truest form of angel investor here because, <laughs> you know, there is something about that when, you know, it's our network. It's actually really easy to reach out and say, I did the diligence. I believe in this. I'm writing this size check. Can we get everyone around the table? It was gutsy, but, uh, you know, I think that it's worked out really, really well so far because we've had uh, an up round, I think, that was over three, four times that value. Yeah. So, Michael, you've often said, you know, you invest in businesses that also have the ability to pivot. And so things are going great right now. But how do you know this when you see this? When is it time for a company to either change course or alter? And how do you see your role in that process? Yeah. So the only thing you can really invest in at the very, very earliest day when Sibyl come up is the people and their ability to pivot or pivot. I mean, every big company we know, every success story we have, you and me, all of us are just pivots. And uh, including the most famous apps you could imagine, they literally were a different name in the beginning. For example, people who stage houses, by accident, we fell into this pivot where uh, they needed to stage houses. So we take away all the furniture and then we drop it off at the furniture and we set it up for them. And that's an entire service. So if you're a home stager, we're the best partner you could ever have. We set up the house for you. We take it down to think about it, right? It's, it's incredible. And, and we didn't know that was available in the beginning. So we keep pivoting towards markets that seem really attractive to our what I call complex logistics. But really, I mean... The ability to figure out that heat spot, that uh, that 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 deep red importance for your company is uh, is probably everything, right? So that's so interesting. So you figured out that there's this huge because I mean this started off as you know I don't want my bike in my condo, and right. uh, and now there's all these businesses and probably someone put something in storage as a business and no one even remembers <laughs> it exists there. Ten years ago in Toronto, you could you'd buy a condo is. 900 square feet. And that was small, but you'd live in it. Now it's 500 and it's okay. <laughs> you know, there's no room to put anything, right? You all, yeah, you actually need a second closet. Totally. That's exactly it. And we see, I mean, we see consistent and great growth on the consumer side and it's just unlocking that untapped market on the enterprise side uh, that we're looking forward to doing as we expand. So how much do you need to trust yourself and your own convictions to succeed as an entrepreneur? And you can kind of take this in a lot of different ways. Is your trust in data? Is your trust in your people? Um, but, you know, how much do you need to kind of trust your own convictions to succeed? 
You know, I think maybe a lot of people are expecting me to say you've got to have great trust in your convictions. But what if I told you that maybe you should trust that sometimes you're just wrong? <laughs> and maybe maybe what you should trust about yourself is your ability to find the right answer. Maybe what you should trust is the ability to open up and say, I don't know. One of the most impressive statements I get from young entrepreneurs is, I don't know the answer to that. I'll get back to you. Yeah. I love that answer because it's like, okay, this, there's some honesty here because this is not an easy question. Mm-hmm. And, and and if somebody who has all the answers, I would never invest in them. I think that that's just either they're crazy or they're lying or they're just so obtuse, they don't make any sense, right? Uh, I, I think that I, I'm looking for people that uh, will get to the right answer. Yeah. What do you think, Mark? Yeah, on my end, I think it's it's sort of a function of exactly what Michael said is, is understanding that you may not always have the right answers. And I think the the pressure is that when you're running a company, everyone looks to you to have the right answer. Mm-hmm. And there's often a pressure of time because in a startup, you're growing fast and those answers generally need to be produced pretty quickly. And so I think the key thing is to have the, uh, the restraint not to just blurt out the first thing that comes to mind, but actually sit on that question and and actually determine whether that's the the right answer to give because people are going to action a ton of things on it. And now that we're making big investments into engineering, into operations, uh, you know, I think we've come to understand that is that we need to take a big step back when we're making decisions. Yes, decisions will take a little bit longer, but at the end of the day, it's going to derive a better outcome. And I think that's why people look to big companies and say, well, look, they're so sluggish. They're not entrepreneurial. They need to really, you know, have change uh, happen faster. And then people look at startups and say, well, that startup's moving a mile a minute. But the reality is, how many things is that startup breaking along the way? And how many things is that large corporation breaking along the way? It's a function of both time and, and making the right decision. And you have to find like a little room between the two. And I think that's something that we're, we're, I mean, everyone always grapples with. I think it's something that we're grappling with is, you know, how do we make the right decisions, but in a reasonable amount of time? Totally. I've always said that, look, the only real advantage a startup has is speed. Truly, everything else can be done better with more resources, with more backing, with better relationships by bigger companies. And so once you lose your ability to execute quickly, you're really um, giving yourself a pretty major Achilles heel. And I think, Michael, you're right. It's not about, you know, trusting yourself always. It's about trusting that you're looking for the answers. And if they're wrong, you're moving along quickly um, because ego gets in all of our way, especially in big companies when some people have ideas on on things and how to get them done. Um, and so I think there's a, there's a great lesson there as well. So Mark, what are the challenges now as you're kind of move, you've moved into this B2B thing, you still have a B2C market, you're growing into multiple cities. Like what, what kind of keeps you up at night? Well, I think it's just that we're taking on more battles on more fronts. We're only 16 months old, and there's been so much that's been developed so far and uh, so much that's being developed on the go. So what we're just trying to do is execute to a reasonable degree to make sure that we're fulfilling our promises to our clients, but then also keep our eyes on the prize and understand where there might be untapped market opportunities that remain agile to take care of it. Let's switch gears a little bit. You guys both started companies with your brothers. Uh, which is a unique relationship uh, amongst amongst many. And there's been a huge number of successful family businesses. There's also been some epic and public uh, unsuccessful family businesses. And so talk about, you know, both of you, kind of the upsides and downsides on, you know, doing something so close uh, with a brother. So I think there's a huge upside. And the downside can be pretty painful as well. As you pointed out, so many family businesses go bad. And I always feel so bad when I see these iconic business families like suing each other over multi-generations. And I don't find it's not normally the first generation that sues each other. It's like their grandkids who end up doing it because they didn't actually start the companies and maybe they don't understand money the same way. Well, and, and they weren't like, we almost killed ourselves doing this and we didn't sleep for a year. Like they didn't have that experience of like, guys, we've been through way harder things than this. <laughs> well, I- I'll tell you, it's telling uh, 
when you when you sell your company, you make some good money. Most of the banks give you this book, and the, basically the book's called Intergenerational Wealth. The first chapter says something like, "By the third generation, ninety percent of the money's gone." Well, I think so the reason it's, is it's, it's twice removed, right? The person that's actually building it, the kids, uh, the whoever is, is experiencing that, sees the trials and tribulations that person is going through to actually build that wealth. But it's twice removed when it's the grandchildren because yeah, it, it's no hope. Yeah. But 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 you know, going back to the question about brothers, here here's the great news. It's like it just just imagine it this way: the people listening, if they have a sibling. So just imagine saying something horrendous to your sibling or like start off with your best friend. If you run a, run a company with your best friend and you say something horrendous and they say something horrendous and it's a horrible fight, ah, next day you guys get back together, you apologize, whatever. It's kind of the same. You're kind of over it. I don't know if you really are. There's this little, little scar that's still there because you remember it and it, it rubs you. Now imagine that same fight with your sibling. It's even a worse fight. You say even worse things and it gets really deep and personal. Yeah, about two hours later, you're over it. You know, and it just goes away. There's something about genetics that I can't explain that you can have a horrible fight and it's like, ah, because you've been doing it now for 30 years anyways or whatever. That genetic layer of protection is so powerful because I can't tell you how many fights Richard and I've gotten into, but you just doesn't stick. It doesn't do what it does with even your best friend. So if you can build a company with your sibling and you could do it well, it's way, way stickier and better. So I'm a huge proponent of it. What do you think, Mark? Well, I mean, from a young age, we did everything together, whether it was you know going to the cottage, playing with frogs, cleaning the house, doing chores. We just did everything together. So I think that conditioned ourselves to just work well together. Funny enough, we can understand each other and what we're thinking in a meeting without having to talk to each other. So whenever we're chatting or having a meeting with a team, we're already on the same wavelength without even having to say something. And I think that's pretty powerful. I don't think that you can get that with anyone else except for a sibling. So I'm fortunate because there's basically, there's two of us um, and we could be in two different places at once. Thinking of expansion, that helps. Um, even you know me just sitting here and the business running, like there's that as well. So, uh, and to Michael's point, I think that's exactly it. You can have really candid conversations with each other and understand that you mean nothing personal by it. Um, you know, offend the person in the worst ways, but then get over it the next second because you have to do that all your lives anyway. And uh, and that's pretty powerful. It is. Those would be the same words that I would use to describe the people that I worked with for years, right? There was just, there was something about, you know, Anatoly and I starting our careers at a school together and then Andrew and I started a company and, and you can just complete each other's sentences and you get to the point where you have to really unconditionally trust this person. And I do believe it's easier if it's a brother. You've known each other since the very beginning when when both of you were were really at the, the small stage. But it is those things that I think make for extraordinarily successful um, co-founder relationships. And so, you know, taking that bit of, it has to start with the co-founders and, and having that really close, tight relationships. But how do you ramp up your team without losing um, trust? To maintain that trust and continuously build it, I try to be as involved as possible in onboarding, tell them where we're going as a company, keep them updated as much as possible. I think providing that visibility when someone's along for the ride is just a fundamental need in a startup. And mm -hmm. I don't think enough of them do it well, because I think the worst thing is when someone comes to work, they write a line of code or they pick up a phone, talk to a client, and they don't know what's going on in the background or what this is building towards. Yeah. Michael, how did you find that you did that, kind of building these teams from, you know, you and your brother without losing the trust of everyone? Um, I think there's this fear when you start a company that you can't let everybody know the financial situation, you can't let everybody know everything. I actually would now restart and do it differently. I would be more open and try to bring the company into helping you solve a problem. And I think people want to be treated with more 
on our adultness here and, and, and get involved and try to solve a problem. Uh, I probably did too much in the early days of kind of hiding certain things and trying to keep people in their swim lane when I really could bring people into solving an issue. And I think people feel more involved and row the boat. And culturally, you know, culture is everything. And, and, um, and, 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 you know, you shouldn't hire, you know, brilliant a-holes. And when you do, they essentially, you know, one rotten apple can spoil a lot. But culture is everything. And I think you also have to have a certain amount of integrity in the system. Um, but listen, the number one, two, and three hard thing to do starting a company is, is hiring great people. It is always hard hiring great people. It was hard 20 years ago, 200 years ago. It's hard now. It'll be hard in 200 years. It's really, really a difficult thing to do. And it's almost everything. The problems you face as an entrepreneur feel so insurmountable. You're like, I'm not sure if I'm going to be able to pay this. I'm not sure if the market's going to like our product. I'm not sure if we're going to live another day. And it's so much easier to feel like, oh, I just won't share all of that fear. Um, and I find now that I'm 100% with you, like all about radical mm -hmm. candor, all about sharing the real stories, because then people know how to help you. And my, my teammates and my employees have just blown my mind with how they have been able to solve problems once they know about them. But I always right. tell my team, like, the hardest thing for you to do is be honest. It is so much easier and it is so well accepted in North America for us to be polite, for us to say everything's going well. When in, in reality, I'm like, there is nothing more terrible that you can do than tell someone in every single one of your one-on-ones that they're doing great. And then one day we have to fire you and they're surprised. Like, Everyone should know. Yeah, I, I often I often joke that there's people walking around Toronto that are 45 years old that have been fired five times and no one's had the guts to tell them why they're really fired. Yeah, it's, it's 100% true. And so I think it feels against your base instinct, which I think is so interesting as an entrepreneur because you're taking on this huge, enormous goal. You're trying to build something from scratch. You're like, I can't actually tell people how scared I really am or they'll never follow me. <laughs> um, I think it's part of that, you know, deep underlying fear. But it's like, I figured out the same thing that you did. And hopefully it sounds like, Mark, you're also in this mood where the more you can share that with people, the more you actually build their trust in you because, you know, you've appreciated that you've gone through far worse times and the company was just fine. But it is definitely the hardest thing to do. Oh, totally. And I think, I mean, there's a lot of, you know, unintended benefits that come out of that as well. And I think the first one is that when you're honest and, and open with everyone, they know the state of the business. And so whether their actions are positive or negative towards the growth of the business, they've already been made aware of where we're at. And so they should have, you know, some understanding of what they should be doing to promote further growth. And when they're not, and they're doing something that's actually hurting the company, it allows you to have more frank conversations and have those harder conversations because you've already made them aware, you've given them all the information they need to know, and still they're acting in a way that's not furthering the company's interest. And so when you have to have the hard conversation, it's like, listen, I've got a team of 35 other people here that are constantly working towards their goals and you're dragging it down. And there's there's really no reason for it because you have complete visibility. And so that's sort of helped me have those harder conversations rather much easier. There's no such thing as easy when you're building a business from scratch. But Mark's sharp insight to make it easier was to combine his favorite elements of his previous companies while building his newest one. The passion for service that he discovered as a team. The art and science of marketing that he learned while selling watches. The result is that Mark clearly knows what he's in business for and what success is supposed to look like. In the same way, Michael knows why he funds who he funds. He cares more about investing in the promise of a person 
rather than an abstract idea or company. He's looking for someone who is assertive, adaptable, and willing to admit what they don't know. Maybe we can't all have a brother to lean on when starting a new venture. Hiring great people to build a great company will always be a challenge, but it can be done. Michael and Mark are proof. This is Earning Curve from Interact and Gimlet Creative with additional production by Transmitter Media. I'm Michelle Romano. Thanks for listening.